Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Hi, Renske. Hi, Beth. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Deaf Studies Podcast. We wanted to start today with a brief chat between the two of us about why we've decided to start. Renska, would you like to explain your reasoning behind wanting to start the Deaf Studies podcast? I think there are multiple reasons for wanting to do a podcast. I think one of them is everyone is doing a podcast, so we should do one too. But I think also it's a great way to talk about research and our cases around topics around death and dying in a very open an accessible way, because I think a lot of academic papers are behind a paywall, are not accessible to the general public, but a podcast is something you can freely access and dip in and out as you please. So you can listen to five minutes and save the rest for later, listen to it in full, etc. So it's a very low-key way to learn about people's research. Yeah, I think it gives you a break for the eyes as well, I think. You can probably hear I've got a little baby at home there making some stuffing noises um, and listening to podcasts I think can be a really nice way to engage with with research and ideas when you've got other things going on at the same time too so one of my uh, motivations for wanting to start it though it was your idea Renska visited me in in Cornwall and one of the things she mentioned when we were having a coffee was that she's interested in starting a podcast focused on on destiny and I thought yeah that's a that's a really interesting idea I, I wouldn't have done it on my own, so it was really nice to have someone to work with who was interested in doing the same thing. And it, in particular, with the pandemic and everything having gone on in recent years, I missed going to the conferences that Death Studies has on offer because attending a Death Studies conference, you meet all these other people from really different backgrounds, from different areas of academia, from practice, and you can learn from people and listen to what they have to say in an environment where talking about death is really welcomed and, and you could just have these really interesting conversations. And I was missing that a lot. You know, I enjoy reading papers and I enjoy following people on Twitter. But it's not quite the same. And to have that opportunity to just listen to people discuss their work was something we really wanted to replicate here, which is why we've gone for an interview format where you won't hear much from us. You're going to hear a lot more just from the people that we're interviewing. Great. And I also think to add to, yes, I think it was initially my idea, even though I think we just had a generic discussion about podcasts and I said, let's do one. I'm also very grateful to do it with you because I think it's a lot of new skills around audio recording, etc. And also for me as a, a non-native English speaker, I have been quite reluctant. Also, I think everyone in general hates their own voice uh, when they listen to it or hear themselves being recorded. But I find particularly um, speaking English as a second language, I was very reluctant to record my voice and put it out in the open because I think there's a lot of judgment and stigma around the proper way of speaking English and the proper way of sounding. But at the same time, I am working in an English language environment and there's just a diversity of voices. But I think without you, I wouldn't. I would not have put myself out there without you, if that makes sense. I would not put myself out there without you. You know, <laughs> it's a privilege to to be able to work with you, and I really value your your friendship. But before it gets too sappy, we should move on to introducing our very first guest, who we're again very privileged to have, which is Dr. Erica Borgstrom from the Open University. A warm welcome to our guest today, Dr. Erica Borgstrom. Erica is a medical anthropologist and lecturer at the Open University, where she's the qualifications lead for health and social care and the lead for open thanatology. That's the Open University's research and education group focused on death-related topics. Erica is a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute and senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy, and she's currently one of the two editors of the academic journal Mortality. For about a decade now, Erica has been researching end-of-life care within the UK, with a particular focus on advanced care planning and palliative care. Thank you for joining us today, Erica. Renska, would you like to begin the question? 
Thank you, Beth. So uh, to start off, we thought for people who are not as familiar with deaf studies as we are, could you please explain what does deaf studies mean to you and how would you define deaf studies to someone who's new to the field? Sure. Thank you both for having me today. Um, that's a very interesting question. So I will like admit to my naivety is, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I didn't even know what death studies was. And at the time I was researching end of life care. And prior to that, actually, I had done research on infanticide and homicide. So, you know, it's perhaps uh, forgivable if people don't quite understand what death studies is, even though it might seem quite obvious when you look at the title death studies. It's, you know, perhaps research or analytical thinking and, and sort of studies and theorizing about death and dying. And also more broadly, grief, loss, bereavement. I know from having spoken to colleagues over the years that sometimes people might think death studies is related to a specific discipline, say more psychology or perhaps more sociology. But actually, I think that kind of depends on and where you're coming from and, and who else you're relating with. There's a lot of interdisciplinarity in death studies, and it's actually much more broader than just, say, psychological studies of grief or dying. And actually, I've noticed, particularly within the UK, where the term is used more frequently, it brings in a lot about the social context about dying and death and grief and bereavement and sort of teasing some of that out. But like I said, when I was doing my PhD in end-of-life care, death studies wasn't something I was familiar with. Um, and actually, in the department I was working in, where you know I was a lot with health services researchers or people working in palliative care, they weren't familiar with the term death studies either. And it wasn't necessarily something... Um, they associated with their research, perhaps because they saw their research dealing with dying and living rather than death per se. Absolutely. I, I rec recognize that from my own studies as well. It wasn't until I moved to the UK for my PhD and someone said, oh, there's a thing called death studies, even though I was researching bereavement before that. And to maybe even further complicate that, there is also another term that's being used that's called thanatology. Do you have any thoughts about the difference between deaf studies and thanatology? Yeah, and again, that's a term where, I, you know, when I first heard it, I had to go look it up and be like, oh, what is that? And spent a long time trying to figure out, is that something I identify with or not within my own academic research? And I'd say on one hand, deaf studies and thanatology perhaps aren't all that different. Both of them are interested in trying to figure out and study uh, and increase our understanding more about dying, death, bereavement, loss. And usually from a variety of disciplinary perspectives. One difference I think I see between death studies and thanatology is sometimes a cultural one. So death studies is a term used more frequently in the UK, for example, to describe either departments or units. We're looking at death research, whereas thanatology is used, say, more often in the North American context or Australia or other countries even. So there's sometimes a cultural divide that kind of comes about using that. Sometimes people might presume that thanatology is much more scientific because of the ology at the end, or that it's somehow more systematic. Um, but I think that's not fair to those who do death studies and say that their studies aren't systematic or, or you know, scientific in that way. And again, I think there's sometimes assumptions that thanatology might be more rooted in psychology or a particular way of approaching death studies. For example, being more on sort of a death positive movement and, you know, encouraging people to see loss as something about transition. But again, I think that's kind of depending on who you're reading and what kind of perspective you're coming from rather than being, a, a, you know, something that represents the entire field. Um, so I guess for me, the main difference really is that thanatology, you know, used in other countries, perhaps more than the UK, although that might be changing. And sometimes it might be recognized as perhaps slightly broader in terms of the subject matter covered, but also that other professionals might relate to it, such as forensic sciences and, and morticians and things like that, which sometimes death studies uh, is more academic. Yes. And how about you are a North American living in the UK? Is there one of the terms that really speaks to you? Or do you identify more with death studies or thanatology or does, does it matter for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. So, so, I'm a North American living in the UK that's also German speaking, and therefore I'm often discombobulated about what term to use when and what relates more. I think like a lot of language, it's about picking up on what has currency in the social groups you're operating in. So, uh, and, and trying to um, 
I guess being someone who's multilingual is have that creativity and language and, and being able to flex flex around with that. Um, but it, it it's made me really reflect thinking about these questions about how, you know, if you would have asked me these, say, 11 years ago when I was starting out my PhD, I wouldn't have even known what either of them really were or how I related to them. So I think it's an ongoing journey about un unpacking what they are and what they might mean for my academic and practical work. Great. And speaking about your PhD, your doctoral research looked at choice in end-of-life care policy and you wrote a thesis entitled Planning for an Uncertain Death, an Ethnographic Exploration of Choice and English End-of-Life Care. Can you please tell us a bit about your research and why you thought it was important to investigate? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking about my PhD. It's always uh, nice to go back to one's big, big work that one did and that took, you know, really consumed one's own life at the time. Um, and I'd say I'm still, still learning stuff from my PhD, even though it's been a while since I did it. So I started my PhD at the very beginning of 2010. And I say that for context, because at that time in England, the national end of life care strategy was relatively new. And I was working within a public health institute with a lot of health services researchers and palliative care researchers who were really interested in trying to understand how to implement this policy, you know, making that shift between policy and practice and improving practice to be better aligned with, with policy agendas, but also, you know, with this assumption about improving patient care. And I kind of came in as this anthropologist and went about like, oh, but actually, what is this policy? What does it really mean? How, how, how do we think about uh, policy into practice and, and practice reflecting people's experiences and wants and preferences? Um, and so I started really interrogating what was in that policy and like hanging out at policy events and that kind of thing. Uh, as an anthropologist, I really enjoy the method uh, called hanging out. It's not that ethnographic research, but <laughs> but so so really going, okay, what is this policy about? And it really struck me that there was this ethos within the national end of life care strategy at the time and these policy events, and, you know, the policymakers that were talking, that choice around end of life care was going to sort of revolutionize how dying was managed and that that was going to enable more people to have what policymakers viewed as a good death. So I was like, whoa, that's kind of cool. This one word concept is going to somehow change, you know, something that's very difficult for a lot of people and something that can feel like it's out of someone's control, even if, you know, we accept the trope that everyone is going to die. So I wanted to know what this thing called choice was. Like, what, what was it in policy? How did they envision it? Um, it turns out policy had a very specific view of what choice was. It didn't mean people had free choice. And again, as a North American coming to that context, choice has certain connotations that weren't relevant here. Um, it, it didn't include, for example, assisted dying, which for some people feels like one of the ultimate choices when we're talking about death and dying. It actually was quite limited to about thinking about where someone might want to die and the types of treatments they might want to be. Uh, exposed to or have access to or or actually primarily didn't want to have. So it was not even about having a choice to have something, but a choice not to have something. So already started to unpick, okay, what, what might choice mean? I then, uh, you know, for that, I wasn't happy with that answer. That just didn't give me enough to figure out how, you know, we were then making these links between policy and practice. So I then spent a lot of time with healthcare professionals observing how they made sense of this language of choice, this ethos and aspiration of choice and end-of-life care in their everyday practice. How did that influence how they talked to patients? How did it even influence in how they planned their their day? You know, what were they actually going to do? And it's really intriguing. You know, it, it made them make certain choices, ironically, about what they did in their, their job, about what kind of conversations they prompted or opened up or closed down about how they started um, monitoring their own work. So for example, I've sat in team meetings with palliative care professionals where they record if they've asked someone about their preferred place of care and death, which isn't something they did prior to that policy, for example. So already I can start seeing that choice was shaping how care and dying start to unfold. Um, and then Again, that wasn't enough of the puzzle for me. I needed more. So I decided to, uh, again, hang out 
with people who were in their last year of life or could have been in their last year of life to really be like, okay, so policy says everyone should be making these choices and the choices are, you know, about how they want to be cared for. But actually, like, what is it like to live uh, when you know you're dying and you're in a system that is trying to make you make certain decisions? Like, what, what kind of conversations do you have? What kind of thoughts do you have? And I was really struck that actually a lot of people aren't engaging with advanced care planning in the way that policymakers wanted at the time. And that was for a variety of reasons. Um, and also that people weren't as individualistic as the language of choice presumed. So for me, it was really important to investigate all of that because policy had a very clear idea about how it thought dying should happen and be managed. And actually by unpicking those different discourses and practices and experiences, it was possible to start saying, well, this is why we're going to have gaps between policy and practice. It's not because people are failing to do what policy says, but actually because there are misalignments between how people conceptualize, for example, choice, or because we don't fully understand how the policy aspirations might be shifting practices of care that might take it away from the goal or aspiration of choice. If we start thinking about measuring place of death, that might mean we're not actually thinking about what people really want. We might be focusing on other things. So it, I think it was really important because it really pushed at um, something that was at the heart of end-of-life care policy at the time to get it to think much more broadly about what it was doing and how it might actually meet the goals it wants to have. Did you also include the voices of dying patients or people towards the end of life? And could you see a different way of viewing choice between professionals and patients? Yeah, so I, I, um, as part of my methods, I spent up to 14 months with 10 people who could be in their last year of life. And I said could be in their last year of life because at the time there was the so-called surprise question where clinicians were supposed to, you know, say, would I be surprised if this person died in the next 12 months? And that was one of the criteria then we used to include them in. And so I I included, I, I wouldn't say directly their voices all the time because I did a lot of ethnographic work. So I included aspects of their stories in in my accounts, all anonymized, of course, within, within the thesis. Um, and what I was struck by, for example, is how much, when it came down to decision-making, for example, how much it wasn't just about me as the individual, if a person was telling me about what they were thinking, but how much it was about us, for example, as a couple, we would make decisions based on what might work for us as a couple. And within there, that there might be tension. So for example, a man would say, oh, I really want to stay at home, but I realized by me staying at home, my wife has to care for me. And actually she herself uh, can only do so much physically. So therefore we need to bring in other people, but she feels uncomfortable about that. And having to negotiate these multiple roles and dynamics and identities. Um, and so that's much more nuanced and complex than some of these documents around preferred priorities of care can ever capture. Um, and that for me was just eye-opening. And it particularly was eye-opening because it takes a while to understand that, to get to know people well enough to see those different elements of their life and how it's coming about. And the anthropological way of looking at personhood was really useful because it helped open up this idea that it's not just about the rational individual mind, but that is about how people connect with others, their environment, materiality, and that um, Marilyn Strathairn talks about the individual and how people are made up actually of all of their relationships. So there's some interesting ways of thinking more laterally about people and their experiences by, by drawing on those theories and engaging with their everyday life. And you said you started this uh, study around end-of-life care in 2010. It's now 2021. Has the end-of-life care policy moved on? Is it still the same? Has it changed in any way at all? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, I mean, back in... So the, the strategy was released in 2008, and it was sort of heralded nationally and internationally as, like, the first of its kind. So it was like, whoa, this big thing, end-of-life care can be, like, this... This, its own focus within healthcare policy. It doesn't need to be attached necessarily to other things and, and that it should be even a human right for everyone. So that came a few years after that. It's been intriguing to, to watch the policy development in the UK, particularly within those first 10 years of it being developed and how the policymakers learned from, from what they did. So 
there was a bit of even more of a shift around choice even 2015 so that language kind of got stronger got more about thinking about what's important to someone and trying to make it less just about place but generally about preferences but still kind of constrained within a health and social care way of looking at life and what someone might think about or need what's also been interesting is how it hasn't necessarily updated within the last six years so our last biggest policy is probably 2015 from the Department of Health. It has morphed to being more of a collective between different organizations. And of course, that has consequences in terms of how much power it has within the healthcare system and, and, and how it gets implemented or how it gets translated from being guidance to actually something that commissioners use to help determine how they allocate resources to different services. So yeah, it's, it's shifted a little bit. I think for me, what has been most intriguing to see that hasn't shifted as much is this commitment to an idea of a good death. There is some sort of implicit and sometimes quite explicit normative view about what a good death looks like and that we're somehow all striving to have that. For me, I guess there's just this tension that is not necessarily readily acknowledged all the time that if you're taking an individualistic approach and saying you're going to personalize care, that you can't also have a very normative view about what a good death is. Because if you're going to be committed to individualizing things, it needs to break down those normative boundaries. Do you expand a bit more on ideas around the good death? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so specifically thinking about the policy documents, um, when the end-of-life care strategy was released, in its sort of executive summary, I think, and I say I think I should know this because I've read these documents so many times, but I'll say I think, um, <laughs> had like a sense of this is what a good death is, like saying that it might be different for everybody, but that it'll have these sort of elements which were like uh, pain and symptom-free in a familiar surrounding, and often that has been interpreted to be someone's home. Um, that people are around the dying person. And again, this has been open to interpretation, but often assumed to be family members and that there's sort of like a loving relationship between those family members that they want to be there and that someone's going to be comforted by that presence um, and that it, there's this sense of dignity um, at, this, at this death. Um, so that's kind of what's written into the document. Now, we know that actually good death can have different interpretations all the time. It actually doesn't just define itself at the moment of death and might be about the dying process and or sometimes about the funeral and the funeral being a way of assessing if the death has been good or not. So there's a lot more variety to it than just, say, the deathbed scene, which I think is kind of how the policy um, has envisioned good death. And I, I, what I found interesting when I've done a policy analysis between the explicit and the implicit notions of good death in, in English end-of-life care policy is that the explicit is, is a lot about, like say, that deathbed scene, sort of like the outcome of what dying should look like, quote-unquote. But the implicit bit is a lot more about the processes around getting there, so about soliciting what someone might want uh, managing resources so that they align to someone's preferences without being adaptable to what that location might be. So there's even been a shift to recognizing that home could mean care home for some people because they might actually be living there for quite a long time um, and that kind of thing. And what I think is quite intriguing still though is, is when I was you know doing my ethnographic research and hanging out with people, and asking them about their expectations and, and kind of what they thought they would like their death to look like is for a lot of people, a good death was actually quite a sudden death. Maybe one they had a chance to, to prepare for, but that they could just die and not have to worry about it. Thank you. That's so interesting to listen to. Um, and I'm sure that at the close of this podcast, Renska will want to add perhaps a little bit about her own research, which was on ideas around home and what that means for people who are dying. So we'll move on now to our next question, which comes from your online profile at The Open University, uh, where you stated that you use your anthropological skills to disrupt the normative concepts in end-of-life care by foregrounding people's everyday experiences and the structural and discursive elements that shape 
how care is provided. And we really enjoyed reading that. And we just thought perhaps you could expand a little on what it means and why it's so important. Um, I mean, I, I have to kind of laugh because like, oh, wow, someone actually read the profile. So cool. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> um, thanks for picking up on it. And um, to be honest, I think for me, one of those statements is actually one that's come out of reflecting back on my work and working with a research mentor to think about what is it that I've actually done in my research and kind of what's my common thread in and how I think and approach my work. So it's rather than being something that I was aware of doing from the start. And, and really for me, it's tapping into my training as an anthropologist and sort of being grounded in that. And for those of you unfamiliar with what anthropology is, very broadly, it's the study of peoples and cultures. And I was trained in a multiple field of anthropology, which means I, you know, studied societies, cultures, but also medical anthropology, as well as bio biology um, and that kind of thing and evolutionary. Um, but so for me, a lot of time it's it's more about the sociocultural or medical anthropology side of things. And when I say I use my anthropological skills, that for me is about how anthropology sometimes frames its subjects. So a classic example in my work is how I approach choice and policy as a thing rather than just an idea, right? Like it it ha it could be viewed in different ways simultaneously and that it could have real life effects. It wasn't just a word on a page. It wasn't just an idea, but it, it can operationalize itself in different ways. And another way of, you know, thinking about my anthropological skills is also about the methodological skills that I've been trained in and am equipped with. And a lot of that is around ethnography or an ethnographic approach to my work. So again, those unfamiliar with ethnography, there's a variety of definitions. <laughs> That's a common theme, right? In academia, that there's different definitions but about grounding one's work in the way that it's experienced by those who live it. And one of the tools within that is sort of participant observation where I've been present and observing things as well as sometimes interacting in those spaces. And, and really for me also, it's not just that tool in terms of data collection, but how I understand that linking to how I make sense of the work and actually linking those moments of observation or participation with wider ways of understanding the social world that's going on. And so, for example, that's why I find it really useful not just to look at policy by itself, but to look at how policy is, is enacted by people who have to make sense of it and the implications of that. And then, you know, kind of doing that dialectical work be between them. And um, so that's kind of, for me, sort of the different ways I have those anthropological skills. So they come about how I frame the world, how I engage with the world, and then how I make sense of it. And for me, it's also, I, I then realize in my work, I tend to pick at concepts or ideas that are normative within the field that I'm studying and kind of go like, oh, what, what really is that? Why is it normative here when it might not be normative for, you know, say the general society? Um, and what might be at play that allows it to be normative or how that might Im impact it? So for example, choice in my PhD, that's what happens in some of my more research recent research it's about looking at um withholding or withdrawing care what does that look like what does that really mean uh, i've also done some work on social um, social death or good death so it's sort of going what are what are the people i'm researching with or about what are they talking about and, and how does that go and then i also like to to play around with juxtaposing those different perspectives together to kind of see what that might mean so as I talked earlier about my PhD, is looking about choice and policy and practice and people's everyday experiences and going, ah, oh, how is that actually all coming together or not coming together? How might it fall apart because they all might be different? And I, I also do this a lot with advanced care planning. So even more specific than that choice in general, it's like, okay, so if we have this idea that advanced care planning is essentially getting someone to think about and document about the types of care they might want in the future, particularly towards the end of life. Like what, what does that do if we talk about the future in that way as something that can be planned for, as something that can be anticipated? What might it constrain if we um, don't have structures for that? And if we do have structures for that, what might that enable or not enable? And the unintended consequences often that come up from those different ways. And sometimes people can view my work as being very critical of say palliative and end-of-life care practice and uh, 
and that particularly around the choice and advanced care planning, where I kind of point out that just doing the planning isn't necessarily going to mean dying is more manageable and or necessarily good. For me, that critique isn't because I don't think people are doing a good job. Like I totally respect the work that a lot of my healthcare colleagues do and particularly people who work in palliative care and take on that, that mission to be with people towards the end of life. The critique really is just about encouraging more of a reflection and a dialogue about how these different things come together and an awareness of actually we are kind of, when we say people should plan for their death, that we are constraining as well as offering creativity about what death can look like and just be, be much more nuanced about that. Um, but that can be very difficult to do in, in a you know a few short tips or our time. But it's just about sort of seeding those thoughts about questioning what some of our concepts, what some of those core beliefs might be in different fields, and how that might be affecting what happened. And that you know enables people to then to meet the quote unquote individuals where they're at, maybe a bit more if they realize you know not everyone has the same view about a good death, not everyone has the same expectations about choice and how they do that or even recognizing that the language we use to talk about death and dying isn't neutral, that policy isn't neutral or inherently always good, right? That we can think about how these things shape what people experience and, and start to come to expect both in their working days, but also in their like life experiences and, and in their grief. Thank you, Erica. And it's so interesting that you raise that idea of academic work sometimes being interpreted as criticism when, when it's critical in a term that's sort of used in an academic context to be a bit more broadly about reflection and nuance and, and thinking through. I wonder if sometimes professionals might actually share some of your feelings and, and perhaps academia is just one place that's an outlet for that, that kind of thought. Yeah, so I, I would say when I am able to collaborate with healthcare professionals, I think they definitely do share some of that. And they, a lot of times, um, will share that recognition that they are having to work within constraints that are uncomfortable, right? They're trying to meet certain objectives that have all of a sudden come out because different guidance has happened, but it might be difficult. And I've had a lot of those conversations, particularly around trying to wrestle with place of death and, and, and also that sense of if you can't fulfill someone's advanced care planning preferences, does that mean you've failed? And how that can be really devastating for someone. And again, like I'm not critical that that, you know, it's not an individual failure, but it's the system that has set it up that even in, allows you to interpret it as a failure, right? So when I work with professionals, I often say, I can't give you solutions. <laughs> um, I might raise more questions, but what I can do through, through the types of methods and ways of thinking that I work with is, is provide kind of a mirror to allow you to reflect on your practice and to think about it. And that has generally been quite receptive uh, when I work with them. But sometimes frustrating when they just want an answer to know how they can do it better. But I, I can't tell them how to do it better. Thank you. And now some of your outputs around advanced care planning have been very popular. In particular, there's um, some online videos and, and one with BBC in particular that's had an awful lot of views. So I think mainly you've worked there on, on video content about advanced care planning. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about those outputs and their aims and, and for anyone interested we'll provide links for them all in the show notes oh yeah cool so if anyone would have told me like when I thought oh I, I want to become an academic that I'd get to make videos based on my research I would have been like no way <laughs> so I would say it's been one of the absolute joys of my career to date that I've been able to do and and that's been uh, really well facilitated through the Open University because you know we have media teams that are dedicated to this and our online learning platform Open Learn which, you know, is is established to provide free learning um, and to translate research into this accessible uh, learning for general population, not necessarily at university level. So I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to, in a sense, challenge to think about how I translate my insights from research into things that I can share with others. And there's different ways we can do that at the EOU through writing articles, through designing short courses and quizzes. But I've, I've teamed up with some colleagues in those in that team that can work on film and so have taken insights from our research and managed to write scripts around it. So one example that I'm thinking of is we have a film called Life or Death Decisions and it's only about 10 minutes long and it centers around a woman who who knows she's 
ill, has a life-limiting condition, and she started to make her advanced care plan. And her ex, uh, same-sex partner, finds her on the floor one day and panics and calls the paramedics. Uh, and then you kind of see the story unfold of going, oh, I've called the paramedics. They're going to take her in, but I know she doesn't want to go into hospital. What do I do now? And she ends up in the film being taken to hospital. And we kind of go back and forth between time and, and places and, and unravel those feelings of what happens when you're having to make these life or death decisions, those complicated social relationships that don't necessarily fit with what healthcare professionals envision. You know, they're ex-partners, they're same-sex partners. They uh, don't have a harmonious family relationship. Uh, and so there's all these things that just make it more difficult. And the insights that I brought from my own research when we were making this film is that actually even quote-unquote very normative family makeups will always have things that might make it complex to make these decisions and might make it difficult for healthcare providers to know what to do. So to try to get people to think about how your own situation might be difficult. We also realized that a lot of people don't know the language around this. So we've used the film in an online interactive. So we will pause it, ask the viewer what they might do at that time. And, and we've actually changed the perspective each time you're asked a question. So you realize you know, there are different perspectives when you're making these very difficult decisions. And then we provide a bit of information. So giving, you know, a sense of what that term might mean or dispelling some of the very common held beliefs about like next of kin. Like next of kin does not necessarily have to mean a biological family member. You can name someone else as next of kin, at least here in, in England. And so, so we've taken insights from research that I gathered through my ethnographic research through hanging out with people and turned it into sort of a dramatized narrative that helps introduce those comments without it necessarily being like a, a didactic lecture and telling people what to think. And for me, that's quite exciting because one of the things I really enjoy about my research and being academic is enabling people to become critical thinkers and to reflect on their own lives. And I've been quite excited that video allows me to do that in a way that sometimes my academic papers aren't going to do for a lot of people, right? So so there's that one. And you mentioned on our one that I've recently done with BBC Ideas, and that one came about uh, essentially after I pitched some of my work to them and told them, you know, this is what I've been doing. This is what I'm quite excited about. So we made a film in during lockdown, during the COVID lockdown called Should Everyone Have an End of Life Plan? And there was lots of discussions about what we include in there and how we, we aim it. And BBC Ideas is generally targeted at a slightly younger population, so 18 to 35, 45, but they know their content on death and dying gets viewed by a much wider range. So we sort of had to play with, you know, we might have different audiences coming at this. Uh, we had the constraints of recording and filming during lockdown, but knowing that because of the pandemic, more people were having to ask themselves about, you know, what would I want if all of a sudden I became really sick? And, and there were these treatment options I hadn't really had a chance to think about beforehand. Does thinking about it beforehand help me or not help me or help those around me, right? So in that film, there are people who had themselves have done advanced care planning or have witnessed you know their their husband who has had an advanced care plan and can talk about how that was helpful for them there's also people in there who have life-limiting conditions and are constantly being asked to make decisions about their care and say actually i don't want to have to think about my end-of-life care because i just want to live and that's just one stage i want to hand over to someone else to make the decisions about so it's not an a yes or no answer but it definitely it opens up those possibilities to get people to think about it. And just even if people aren't watching the film, having it phrased as a question like that is getting them already to think about it. And another film that I've made is uh, actually came about because we have some clinical and charity partners in Milton Keynes, where the Open University has a campus, who wanted to make a film about advanced care planning that they could put in the GP surgeries or like up on the big hospital screens uh, in the waiting rooms so that people can be introduced again to the idea of advanced care planning. And in that, we then have more of the stories of people who have done, done advanced care planning, why they've done it, uh, and kind of that reassuring that it doesn't have to be morbid or scary or even always necessarily very difficult, but it can be very life-affirming and to give some information about how to do it. And in particular, we quite enjoy doing it with Milton Keynes partners because they locally have a version of an advanced care plan document that's quite broad. 
It's not just about treatment decisions. It can include things like your funeral wishes, thinking about your social media. And that's a nice way of also getting, you know, people to think about it, not just about, you know, if you were in the hospital, what would you want? But actually, generally, how do you want to round out the last bit of your life? Thank you, Erica. And having watched those videos, that I find one of the things I really like about them is, as you were saying, they, they mainly just raise a lot of questions. They really get you thinking about, you know, would it be like that for me? Would it, was it like that with the same experiences that I've had or that I you know, know of? And you kind of just starts the ball rolling. But they're also quite life affirming videos. You know, they're not they're not videos that you sort of don't don't want to watch. They've been really well produced to, to kind of be engaging and, and get those questions raised without leaving you feeling sort of, uh, oh, gosh, this is a, another big thing I have to do that I wasn't aware I had to do before. Yeah, and I would say that's been very intentional with the sort of imagery, the feeling of the videos, the tone of them, and um, particularly say with the BBC Ideas one, there were lots of edits that we went to be through before, before it was released, just even about changing what images we put in there so it wasn't all about hospital rooms or the quote-unquote, you know, death images that we normally associate with end-of-life care, either of holding of hands or someone looking really poorly in, in a bed, or sometimes, oddly enough, just empty hospital beds, which can be quite terrifying, actually, if you're looking at that. So there's been a lot of thought in all of these videos about the, the mood we're portraying, as well as the, the verbal content and the storytelling that goes into it. And I think that's something, you know, when we're writing an academic paper, we don't have to think about the visuals in the same way because we might not have them. So being able to sort of share research through this method is, is nice and that it allows that to come in in a different way. Um, and I'm very uh, against sort of thinking about death as a taboo and so trying to make sure that's not always in there as well or that it has to necessarily be something that's going to make everyone teary at the end. So yeah, so that's like I said, it's been very intentional how we've done some of those videos and we're always learning from it too based on how the audience reacts to it. So any feedback we're very open to. Now, I'd like to go briefly back to your role at the Open University and the interdisciplinary research group that you head up that's called Open Thanatology. If you could perhaps just tell us a little bit about what Open Thanatology is, what it's about, and, and perhaps its history and how you envisage that. Yeah, thank you. So um, I joined the OU about five years ago. It'll be five years ago this year, I think. Um, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to join the OU is because actually I knew it had a long history, about over 20 years or so, of doing... Uh, research related to death and dying and having a very innovative distance learning module about death, dying and, and bereavement. And also later lease some courses on end of life care. So it was one of the few places in the UK that was like, ah, oh, there's like a group of people doing quote unquote death studies, right? And and like, well, that's maybe where I could fit because often I'm at the margins of say anthropology or sociology or palliative care. So that was quite nice. And the group has waxed and waned over those years. Um, depending on, you know, who's been at the university, the projects they've been involved in. and um, But it has always had this sort of life course perspective of covering uh, studies from, you know, as early as miscarriage and stillbirth to death and later life and sort of also covering bereavement and, and carers post-death. So there's, there's this wide range that has happened in there. And back in the autumn of 2020, I was voted in as the new leader of the group. And I was very struck. Uh, as we were all remote working, that the group had kind of sort of been very active behind the scenes. There was lots of people who were doing death research, but didn't always come together as, as a group. And that sometimes the group was quite located, either metaphorically or geographically, sometimes on campus, within the health and social care department, and didn't necessarily speak to our colleagues outside of that department or faculty. So I've been much more intentional in trying to make the group larger in a way and more inclusive, bringing in those other disciplines. Uh, part of the rebranding to open thanatology was to reflect that because I had spoken to and listened to people saying, well, they didn't necessarily think their research fit in with the health and social care understanding of death and grief. And so actually trying to find terminology <laughs> that can cover that broad range. And I will say that the new name is controversial, but I'm giving it a chance. And try, again, part of my leadership is about experimental and learning from actually what the group wants and to you know be supportive of our participants uh, and grow. And to also think a little bit more about our external reputation. I think we've, we've let that slide maybe slightly and to think about how we might reach out to others. And that's part of our open mission as the university, but also as a group and, and not just in collaborating, but also thinking about how we 
share what we find in our research and our education, and then also attract people to work with us, including, you know, postgraduates and postdocs, uh, as well as external collaborators, whether they be academics or, you know, practitioners working in a, in a, lot, a lot of fields. And I'm quite excited to see the group group grow. And I think it'll be quite dynamic in terms of how we work over the next few years. But I'm quite excited by what was happening and and bringing on new people, both within the university, but also externally. Like, for example, recently, we have a new visiting fellow, Claire Henry, who used to be the national end-of-life care lead. So she was theoretically one of the policymakers I was analyzing in my work, right? So it's it's quite exciting time to think about how we might work as a group that has this aim about being open and inclusive and doing research and education. So not just research, but also education across the wide field of of death, dying, grief, loss, bereavement studies, uh, and again, still keeping that life course perspective. Great, thank you. And on top of all that, you, you're also one of the two editors of the academic journal Mortality. Um, wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Mortality as a journal and what it is, and just let our listeners know if they're not aware of Mortality, what it's all about. And yeah, just tell us a bit about what it involves being the editor of a of an academic journal. So Mortality is. Uh, an academic journal that's international and interdisciplinary in nature, uh, generally covering the field of death studies. Uh, I would say sometimes people assume because of the title it might be about epidemiology or mortality statistics, but I would say a lot a lot of our submissions and the things we publish are way broader than that, actually more on the sort of social sciences or humanities uh, side of things. It was founded about 25 years ago by Peter Jupp and Gladys Howarth uh, in the UK, but it's been really broadened out since then. And it's, we publish issues four times a year uh, and as well as online. And it has a, it's for really to provide an interdisciplinary space to explore death, dying, and bereavement. Uh, and we really like to think that it's a space where both new scholars or practitioners, as well as very established professors can, can publish and share their ideas. And so we're quite dedicated to engaging with new authors and, and new reviewers as well. And allow adding to the debates that are happening in our our respective disciplinary fields but also the interdisciplinary field and showcasing the development of scholarly thinking over time so i think it's definitely a journal where new research can come but also reviews of existing research and, and concepts can happen and what does it take as an editor of a journal well good question <laughs> uh, i would say Beth does a lot of the behind the scenes management and reminds me when I have stuff to do, but I, I will look at things when they come onto my desk and, and read abstracts, trying to find reviewers who will give useful and fair reviews to those, those papers. And then I will look at those reviews, make certain decisions about them, liaise with the authors and reviewers about that. And I like to think that as a journal, we have a, a mission between us editors of, the, of fostering the scholarship there so you know trying to encourage authors to improve their work uh, in, a, in a helpful manner thank you erica and maybe picking up on that i i remember my first academic journal was actually paper was pub published in mortality and when i was a master's student or i just finished my master's student so we thought for the final question having maybe talked about your research and your ideas to go back to academic careers and we've had some conversations uh, about career choices and challenges in academia in the past and we were wondering what were some of the challenges you have faced uh, during your academic career and how have you managed those and you have any advice for early career scholars PhD students and anyone in academia really or thinking about becoming part of yeah, it sure so um I think it would be a lie if I say I haven't had any challenges. So there's there's probably more than what we have time for. Um, one challenge I would have said for me was knowing what to study. And this still comes up, even though I now have like a permanent academic position. Uh, and it can be very easy to be influenced by what's sort of seen as popular at the time or thinking, oh, that's only what's going to get funded. And for me, it's just been helpful sometimes to try things out a little bit and get some feedback on it. For example, initially I had really wanted to do a PhD about infanticide in Northern Ghana. And after a trip to Northern Ghana for three weeks, I discovered actually I did not want to do a PhD on that. And that I was really glad that I was able to uh, have that experience prior to starting my PhD. Cause I think that would have made the PhD much more difficult 
Um, and I have often sought the help of either peers or mentors to help me make some of those decisions and specifically not people that are my supervisors because I recognize supervisors have in, implicitly their own agendas with PhD supervision and their own academic careers. Not to say that they don't give good advice, but I think sometimes it's helpful having that sort of external advice to that to help make those decisions. And to also know that it's okay to change your mind. I think that can be really difficult at times to accept. And it's not a failure if you start on a path and then decide that's not for you and you want to do something else. So that's been really helpful for me in terms of my own mindset and doing that. I'd say another challenge, and I think this is something that a lot of people experience in academia, is like the difficulty of getting a job and having funding. And I'd like to say I had a magic solution for that, but I don't. I'm probably now very comfortably at the position where I can tell you I've been more unsuccessful with funding than I have been successful. So there is a certain level of perseverance with that, as well as just luck and like being lucky with that. So I guess a key message there is, is being able to depersonalize some of that but also being willing to, to sometimes be strategic about one, what one applies for. So for me, when it comes to applying for jobs, I realize I kind of have to be picky because I have a partner and his career kind of dictates sometimes where we need to live. I also have two kids. So therefore I kind of, you know, I'm constrained in different ways as well as, you know, that's quite happy to have a partner and kids at times. So it's not always a bad thing, but it can make it difficult when academia is I know when I was at Cambridge, it really much felt like it was set up for a bachelor's lifestyle who could live, you know, had no responsibilities. But what I wanted to say was having those constraints at times means when I'm looking at all the opportunities in, say, a job at, you know, listings, is I know I can't apply for all of them. So it helps me whittle down and focus my energy on the ones that uh, are more suited to my lifestyle, which at times I think helps sell oneself in the cover letter more, gives. It, for me, at least, it's given me more time to do the applications I then do apply for because I'm not trying to do 20 at the same time. It's it's much more. But on the flip side, I would say, yeah, if possible, building up savings because there are gaps in funding and jobs. And it's not fun. Precarious academic life is not fun. And no, if that's where you're at, you're very much seen and you're very, very valid as a human person, even if you're currently between things. And I guess a related challenge when there are those setbacks that I've experienced has been that sense of imposter syndrome and like the number of times I've asked myself, am I really cut out to be an academic? Like, am I smart enough, right? Like, is what I'm doing worthy enough? Is what I'm doing making a contribution? And that could be really hard because academia has a lot of ways of making you feel like you're never doing enough or like you need to be better or, you know, constantly changing the world, constantly publishing in the best places. And so for me, it's taken a lot of time to sit and figure out what it is that I do. What is it that my contributions are? And it it's meant I've sat down and spent time thinking about what's important to me. What does academic success look like to me and how that may or may not be the same as what my line manager thinks, what my head of department thinks, what the university thinks, all of those, right? And to find those moments of joy and those moments of, oh yeah, I do fit here, even when, you know, a lot of it can feel very disorienting or or challenging in that respect. And for me, that's really important because I, my work often sits at the margins of a lot of different disciplines and therefore I'm not going to succeed in all of those disciplines at the same time. Like that's just not humanly possible. And I have to recognize that that's not humanly possible. And so I've had to kind of carve out my own niche in that way about what it is that I want to do uh, and, and work on that myself. And like, for me, the imposter syndrome thing was re is really big, was really big. It's, I would say is still sometimes because inherently I'm an introvert. I don't like presenting. I, I, I started private blog when I was writing my PhD about being a reluctant writer. I hated writing. It felt so alien to me and just like something that I was constantly failing at. So it's stuff I've had to work on. And again, I found it really helpful having mentors or peers to talk about it with, uh, again, to recognize that I'm not online with some of those feelings. And I guess maybe sort of tips for people who are maybe managing their own careers or thinking about balance is 
connect with other people like that's for me at least has been really super helpful whether it be academic networks peers within the university external to the university doing similar things particularly if you know if you are doing more niche topics finding other people who don't think you're strange because you're talking about death all the time has, for me was super helpful i have found going to conferences really helpful particularly giving presentations to, to kind of get other people familiar with my work to practice some of those skills that I felt really uncomfortable with. That's been really good. And for me also, I'd say something that's useful for career advice, and this is now that I sit on like interview panels and things like that, is like, it's really important to think about what skills you have and not just the topic you study or what you do, but like actually think about, I, I hate that term, transferable skills, but transferable skills. What is it that you're doing that that helps you apply your ways of thinking and doing to other problems as well, because that will then help you be flexible in your career. Thank you, Erica, for that open and honest conversation. And also, at least I don't know if Beth agrees, but for me, it's really refreshing to hear that even someone like you, who on, if you look at your publications and your outputs and where you are, there are still doubts and thoughts and complicated lives that shape your academic career and the choices you make in research. So. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today to speak to us about your work, your career, and giving some nice pieces of advice to our listeners. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Okay. So here we are at the end of the first episode of the Death Studies podcast. Thank you for listening to us. I know when I was listening to Erica speak there, one thing that really stood out for me was the way that she was talking about challenging and undoing, disrupting some of the ideas around death and dying and those common sense assumptions that, that get made all of the time, um, both in our daily lives, in the media, in, you know, sometimes in research, and pulling those apart a bit. I think that's one of the things that's always really appealed to me about death studies right from the start, was it was something that straight away started challenging a lot of my own assumptions and helped me un undo some of those ideas that I perhaps had that... Um, are still it's still challenging ideas that I have all the time as it gives me more and more to think about and it also reminded me then as I mentioned earlier in the episode of some work that Renska has done and looking at the idea of home absolutely I was thinking along similar lines because where Erica has focused on the end of life care policy and notions of choice and there you can already see the tension of people's perception of choice and what choices are there and then a policy notion of choice and my PhD was on the meaning of home because that is one of the quote-unquote choices in place of death and also as someone doing research on home and end of life uh, living and like Erica in a country that's not my birth country yes I would want to die at home but I have no idea at this point in my life where home is. Is it a place? Is it a feeling? Are it people, etc.? So I think there's a lot of connections uh, between Erica's work and my own work. And yeah, it, it's really interesting to think about those things because I've also probably, Erica will get the same response, but I've questioned the notion of home to policymakers and they sometimes get really angry because they think it's really straightforward. And I think it is the work of deaf scholars and anthropologists or whatever your discipline is to yeah, break down those assumptions and break down those notions. So I think it's a good starting point for further reflections um, on these topics. And I think the final question, and Erica gave some lovely advice and tips on working in academia and things like that. But I found it, as I say at the end, really refreshing that even someone like Erica, who in my book is like a rock star of deaf studies, has similar doubts and hesitations and has to make difficult choices. Well, it's been lovely talking with you today, Hironska, and it was great to speak with Erica. Thanks again to everyone who's listened and uh, apologies for any audio glitches where you're getting used to the editing process. <laughs> yeah, sorry on my end, because I think or we can make it a guessing game for listeners, but I think during one of my questions, I'm also frantically clicking my mouse and that is something you can definitely hear. So we'll stop doing that next time. And to second Beth, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies podcast. 
You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedevstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word.